Ukrainian government decided of all times to make this announcement that they're going to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and move their embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Why on earth would they want to do it now of all time? The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with Asa Winstanley. Today, we're happy to have Sheer Hever back on the show to talk about a few different topics relating to Israel's weapons and spying programs and the recent revelations that Israel will be clearing the U.S. State Department first regarding uh, all their business deals with China. Sheer is an economist and researcher who understands in depth the economic factors behind Israel's occupation of the West Bank and Gaza Strip as well as the Israeli arms and surveillance technology industries. Shir uh, is the author of The Political Economy of Israel's Occupation and The Privatization of Israeli Security. Shir, welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, let's talk about your recent article uh, in Middle East Eye. Uh, you wrote that at the beginning of January, quote, sources in the Israeli government leaked the news that Israel had been had Israel had informed the U.S. State Department that from now on, all major business deals between Israel and China would be cleared with Washington first. And according to Haaretz, this was an Israeli initiative rather than succumbing to a direct U.S. demand. Can you talk more about the significance of this move uh, by Israel to appease Washington, especially as the U.S. continues to try and undermine China's economic power? What do you make of this? Yeah, the pressure by the United States and Israel on this issue goes back decades. It's certainly not a new issue, and it was especially uh, pertinent when we're talking about the arms uh, trade. There were the Harpy drones, a very famous case in which Israel wanted to buy, to sell Harpy drones to China and had to cancel. Uh, back in the early 2000s, Israel already signed an agreement with China to sell a spy plane, the Falcon spy plane. And the United States stepped in and blocked the deal. And Israel had to pay compensations to China for $1 billion at the time, which was a big blow. And more recently, there was a very shady case where about uh, the Israeli secret police had to round up and arrest about 20 arm dealers. And according to the very little information that was released, these arm dealers are people who were employed, employees of some of Israel's largest arms companies and not just, you know, criminals from the street. Um, uh, for trying to sell a suicide drone to a customer without a sales permit. And it turned out apparently that this this uh, customer was Chinese or represented a Chinese company and therefore uh, they were arrested because, you know, selling to militias in Africa uh, is fine without a sales permit, but as long as it doesn't fall into Chinese hands. So these are the arms deals, but now we're not even talking about that. We're talking about civilian infrastructure projects. The Israeli infrastructure system is collapsing. There is a serious crisis in infrastructure, and this has to do with the fact that Palestinian workers were the ones who actually built the infrastructure. <laughs> you know, the, the actual workers uh, are, are being terribly mistreated, not paid for the hard work that they do. During COVID times, there were severe uh, closures to prevent Palestinian workers from coming into Israel and working. There's competition between the Israeli companies about whether Palestinian workers should build housing for res residential housing or infrastructure and so on. The Chinese companies are always ready to come in and offer a cheaper price. But then the US tries to put a lot more pressure. And when it comes to weapons, the US can put that pressure much more easily because Israeli arms technology, there is no such thing as an Israeli arms technology, actually. Everything has some component that is incorporated that was developed in a US company. So as long as there's a component, whether it's in the spy plane or in the drone or whatever, the Americans can always say this, this technology belongs to us. That means you have to inform us if you're selling it to, to a third party and so on. In infrastructure, we're talking about seaports. We're talking about a subway train that's supposed to operate in Tel Aviv. We're talking about the tram, the, the the notorious tram in Jerusalem that connects the illegal colonies in East Jerusalem to the West. These projects 
are not military projects, or at least uh, don't include any, any kind of military technology, but the US is still putting pressure. And this, of course, causes a lot of speculation. Are the Americans afraid that uh, the Chinese are going to put some cameras or listening devices? And the Haifa port is a port where a lot of US uh, military naval vessels stop for resupplying and uh, refueling. So the Chinese would be able to, to follow him, uh, follow these vessels. That, that, I don't think that's so interesting. I think what is interesting is how dependent the Israelis are on this. You know, the, the Israeli economy became so much dependent, especially because of BDS. And when Naftali Bennett, who is now the prime minister, when he was the minister of the economy, he dedicated his short term as the minister of the economy to fighting BDS in his own way, which was he took a trip to China. That was one of the first things he did. And he said on that trip, look, the, the Chinese, he also had a stop in India and the Indians uh, don't care about the occupation. He didn't use the word occupation, he used the word conflict, of course, but we know what he meant. And they don't care about that. They want our technology, they want our product, so I'm going to sign a lot of deals. And this is going to be our way out, you know, for the Israeli, uh, because still, despite all these trips, the biggest trading partner of Israel remains the European Union, where the boycott movement is very strong in the European Union, and there is a lot of pressure on companies to make sure what's the source of the products and so on. So allegedly, the Chinese don't care. The Chinese even proved it when they bought Ahava. Ahava was, which is one of the most famous cases of an Israeli company that operates in illegal colony, plunders Palestinian natural resources and the Dead Sea, and then uh, makes them into cosmetic products that are sold around the world. This company became such a symbol for the boycott movement that uh, their stocks were plummeting and they started closing shops in the UK. And then the Chinese bought them, maybe because they thought they could turn it around. They made some statement that they're gonna move the factory inside the Israeli side of the green line but uh, they haven't done so as far as I know. So, uh, so there is a lot of dependency on, on the Chinese market there. And nevertheless, we see the Israeli government in this moment where they need to, to get this Haifa port done and they need this subway in Tel Aviv very, very urgently saying they're going to get permission from the United States before signing any contract with China. I think that we need to see this in, in direct relationship to what's happening in the Ukraine right, right now, because the pressure that uh, Ukraine is being put under, you know, that there are talks between Russia and the United States about Ukraine, whatever the people in Ukraine want is not really part of the conversation. And uh, there is a threat of war, a very real threat. And the Ukrainian government decided of all times to make this announcement that they're going to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and move their embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And why on earth would they want to do it now of all times? I think it's pretty clear. They're doing it now because they're trying to um, signal to the United States, we're, we're willing to stand with you on any <laughs> point, whatever, however absurd and however um, irrational, as long as you save us as long as you're willing to take some risks on our behalf. I think it's very clear the U.S. is not going to take any risks over Ukraine. They're willing to, to put sanctions on Russia, but they're not willing to do anything more than that um, or to, sell, to, to send weapons to, to the Ukraine, but they're not willing to risk uh, human lives for this. And um, I think what the Israelis are doing with China is the same thing. They are seeing that uh, they, their hold over public opinion in, in the global community is dropping. Their hold over their own population is dropping. The Israeli military is facing a severe crisis of discipline with a lot of soldiers just blatantly ignoring the orders that they're receiving and doing whatever they want. And in these conditions, Israel is very much worried because, you know, just a couple of months ago, uh, the Congress was able to drop this, the funding for the Iron Dome system from, uh, from uh, the budget bill. Yeah. And then Yair Lapid, Israel's um, foreign minister, made urgent calls to the Democratic Party and basically 
played out all his cards, <laughs> cashed in all his chips to say, please get this funding back on, not because we need the billion dollars, but because uh, we, we can't afford to have the newspapers say that the new administration in Israel is not on the best terms with the United States. And if the US is not willing to, to uh, give Israel a full umbrella, then it's gonna make the resistance much stronger to the Israeli occupation, to the apartheid system. Uh, so please just, just get it done so we can say it's done. And I think now they, they really feel like they're, they're under a lot of pressure and, and the United States are, have, have done so many favors for the Israeli administration, so they're not going to do any more favors. So that's why they're coming out of their own initiative and saying, oh, oh we, also we're going to stand with you on China. It's, 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 it's fascinating to, to hear you analyze this. Um, I want to take a step back. You mentioned that um, in, in, in large part, um, you know, Israel is, is really facing this economic squeeze, um, uh, you know, due to uh, boycott, divestment and sanctions campaigns. Um, and we, you know, we frequently hear from, you know, Israeli officials, um, from Israel lobby organizations that BDS, uh, you know, has no impact that, you know, the Israeli economy is, is as strong as it's ever been. And, um, you know, BDS is, is a, you know, at, at the same time, it's, it's a, a, a campaign that nobody, um, you know, should be supporting because it, it's not, you know, it, it doesn't make an impact, but at the same time, you know, Israel put together an entire ministry, the, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs that has now been, you know, essentially folded into the foreign ministry to combat boycott movements around the world. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the impact that, that the BDS campaigns, uh, especially in, in Europe, have had on the Israeli economy and, and how Israel is trying to really obfuscate um, that fact? The, the people who put together the BDS movement, they had and still have a keen understanding of the Israeli psyche, the Israeli culture, the Israeli political system. And I think they've understood from the very beginning that BDS is never going to have a noticeable economic impact on the Israeli economy in the sense, you know, that people would say, oh, we, we want to buy things, but suddenly uh, we don't have the money anymore or to, to import or uh, people are losing their jobs in the thousands because factories get closed down. That's not, that's not really on the BDS agenda and never has been. The point was to make Israelis realize that their crimes are being, are out in the open and people are discussing them. And the very idea that people are standing in front of a supermarket with uh, handing out flyers and boycotting may cost the Israeli farmer who was, uh, um, probably in the West Bank in an illegal colony uh, selling some red peppers, maybe, you know, a couple of euros or dollars or whatever, or a couple of hundred, that's not going to destroy the Israeli economy. But when that video gets on YouTube, this is activating a discussion inside Israel that then goes on to the, to the Ministry of Strategic Affairs and goes into hundreds of millions of dollars to try to stop the BDS movement. That's where the impact is really when the israeli government says we are willing to spend a lot of resources and not just resources in terms of money but also in terms of time in terms of legitimacy in terms of ruining the relationship with jewish communities which say you're willing to go to length to fight the bds movement that are just too much for us i'm speaking from germany right now in germany the, the parliament was pressured by Israel to pass this resolution, not, not even a, a law, but more of a declaration that compared the BDS movement with the crimes of the Nazis. So Jews are horrified by that and say, you know, even if we don't support BDS, it's still a movement which is a nonviolent movement. It's based on human rights and international law. You can't compare that to the Nazis. Uh, so this is part of the price they're, they're paying for it. Now, the uh, minister Erdan was the minister, the, the BDS minister of Israel, and not the smartest <laughs> Israeli politician by, by far. <laughs> it's uh, quite the a competition thing, there, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. But one of the first things that the new administration did, the new Bennett Lapid administration did was to close this department, to close the ministry. They didn't just fold it into the into the foreign ministry. They, they made a statement that this ministry is doing more harm than good because they realized that these measures of espionage, and I hope we'll, we'll have a little bit of time to talk about espionage as well and, and cyber technology. These measures are really giving Israel such a bad name that it's doing the work of BDS for the activists. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about the Ministry of Strategic Affairs is that it was never it was it was always controversial within within Israel within the uh, different factions of the Israeli government. For one thing, it was always seen as essentially uh, uh, you know a Likud Netanyahu kind of project. You know, because Erdan was very close to Benjamin Netanyahu, um, and <clears throat> it was always seen by the sort of um, liberal Zionists and the Labour Zionists as kind of too crude and too too um showy and too open because they were always declaring what the ministry of strategic affairs were doing whereas the the, the labor zionists saw it as something that should be done um quietly like um in you know by having um basically coming under the auspices of the ministry of foreign affairs and essentially the mossad and uh, other intelligence agencies done in a very quiet way and um this was really the downfall of the Ministry of Strategic Affairs, that it was um, too, as you said, it was too embarrassing, really, essentially. So also like, the 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 Marker newspaper, which is the economic attachment to Haaretz, uh, they did a study and discovered that almost 20 percent of the budget of the ministry goes to publications inside Israel in Hebrew. Right. Right. Because they were trying to project to the Israeli public. We're dealing with BDS <laughs> on your behalf. But this message was the main message rather than actual trying mm. to to stop bds public relations this is interesting uh, yeah i didn't I, know I it was that high that 20 percent of the budget extraordinary. Mm. <laughs> yeah almost 20 percent of the budget mm. uh, and they got a, a far-right um actor in israel uh, one of the very openly racist actors in israel to be the face of that campaign and he did these videos in hebrew he doesn't even speak english uh, where he explained how how bds is a terror organization uh, in he but but who is he trying to convince i think yeah. that that's a very interesting thing if he's mm -hmm. trying to convince hebrew speaking jewish israelis don't support bds okay that's that's an interesting <laughs> <laughs> strategy <laughs> definitely worth the money there but uh, um, yeah. yeah, Gilad Erdan, by the way, is still Israel's ambassador to the UN, mm. which I think yeah. shows the level of contempt that the Israeli government has to the UN. They didn't even bother putting somebody from one of their own parties. They kept this Netanyahu uh, guy over there just because they can't be bothered finding somebody else. Uh, but now the, the most recent news is that Yair Lapid quietly got the government to approve reopening a part of this Ministry of Strategic Affairs, mm. a company called Concert, which used to be called Kela Shlomo, uh, like the, the sling of Solomon. Yeah. You know, David was the one with the sling, not Solomon, but they, they, they got their Bible wrong anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but now they're calling it Concert, and it's a project which is supposed to act secretly through espionage methods, but uh, the funding has to be matched through either private donors or civil society right. organizations. This is exactly what toppled the, the Israel project tip in the US when they had to match the donations. And they said, well, civil society money cannot go to government sponsored espionage. That would get us in trouble. And eventually they went bankrupt because the donors backed back down. And concert is trying to bring that back in. And I think that's that's very worrisome, of course, because you don't want to be spied upon. <laughs> but uh, it is interesting to see that the Ilapid, who has apparently learned nothing, is still urgently feeling the need to talk to his own public and to show something that they're doing against BDS, which means, yes, they are very much worried about BDS all the time. They constantly have to give a spin on every bad economic story that happens. You know, there's a little bit of a decline in the exports of commodities for whatever reason, they have to put a spin on it. Otherwise people might start to think, oh, is this because of BDS? Sure, uh, let's take a look at the broader political economy of Israel's apartheid and military occupation structure. Um, 
you wrote about the ongoing protests by activists in the UK against Elbeat Systems and the factories that this Israeli arms giant has set up there, uh, as Asa has reported. Um, and of course, as we've covered in the podcast just a few weeks ago, activists were able to shut one of them down in Oldham. Um, you wrote that it was, quote, a blow to Elbeat's expansion strategy. It, it creates a precedent that could slow down or even reverse the company's growth trajectory and serve as a warning to the arms industry that selling weapons is a political act and that arms companies could be held accountable for violations of human rights and international law committed using their products. Can you talk more about the Elbeat situation and what this says about the precarity of the Israeli arms company's uh, expansionist strategy? Elbit is the biggest Israeli arms company. In 2018, they bought the, th the, the fourth biggest company, thereby becoming the biggest, and they bought it from the government with a massive bailout, and the government forgave all the debts of the company so that they could be given to Elbit pretty much for free. Uh, that made Elbit a very powerful corporation within the Israeli arms industry. Uh, but Elbit has their own financial strategy where they keep growing all the time because they have to somehow prove that they could stand on the same level as the US gigantic corporations, you know, uh, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, uh, General Electric, and Elbit is, is tiny compared to those. So in order to, to try to carve a market share for themselves, they keep going deeper into debt, buying new companies, small companies, either Israeli companies or other uh, they've actually bought a small company from Bay Systems in the UK, so to get a foothold in the UK. And every time they do that, they can leverage the fact that now they have another company to go to the bank and say, well, now we have a bigger base, more, more workers, more factories, more, more customers, so we want another loan, which we need to buy another company, right? So this is how it works. And the, the fact is that in the last 20 years or so, uh, almost 20 years, interest rates were very low overall, and especially after the 2008 crisis. So that gave Elbit pretty much a very, very cheap financing to keep growing the company. And I don't want to get into you know, boring finance stuff, but it becomes very interesting when that strategy hits a wall. And now it, did, it does hit a wall in the UK. That's a very exciting development because if they have to sell a company and lose some of their market share, they're reversing the trend. So what was and, the reaction in the markets when Elbit had to sell this uh, Ferranti factory? It, you know, it, it tried to sort of uh, spin it as, uh, I forget the exact phrase, but it was quite funny. It was something like a consolidation, a refocusing of their business, something like that. What was the market? They're reaction? pivoting to something else, right? Yeah. <laughs> the market was responded positively because the Israeli media did not report any a word about this. And the thing is, the Israeli media, especially the economic newspapers, are staffed by low-paid journalists, really low-paid, overworked journalists. I don't envy them. They have to fill a newspaper every day with lots of stories, economic stories. And what they do often is they get press releases from the companies, take off the logo of the company and put it in the newspaper almost word for word. That's what not just in israel you know that that's a yeah. problem all over yeah <laughs> um elbit systems ha is more than any other company in israel is the one who sends those press releases and they keep sending them because they need to get investors inside israel to buy their stocks and to, they need lots of money coming in through investment to be able to keep this leveraging for further mergers and acquisitions as part of their strategy. So they're not gonna, they're now not telling the truth to the, to the um, investors. Of course, they have to, to write full financial reports. They, they're also the best reported company among all the Israeli arms companies because they're also traded in the US. So they, ha they have more uh, transparency than, than most companies when it comes to their financials. But when it comes to things that are more political and require some speculations and some analysis, they're not legally obligated to talk about it. So they just don't talk about it. Now, what do you think the, the speculators are going or, or the investors are going to think when they discover that this story has been kept from them? So sure, right now, when they don't know anything about this and Elbit is, is pushing the uh, big 
project they had with uh, Greece, a 20-year contract for improving the Greece um, Navy and air defense system and training systems for pilots for, for 1.7 billion euros, a very, very big contract for Elbit, which of course also begs the question, why does Greece need all this money? And, and it brings us a little bit back to Ukraine because the only real enemy that uh, Greece might be pointing their guns at is Turkey and both countries are supposed to be NATO. Uh, but uh, so, so that's a whole different issue. But Elbit is um, uh, pushing that deal, not talking about what's going on in the UK. And once the investors realize that this is a company that is going to, you know, keep their dirty little secrets quiet, uh, while activists are making some, are, are successfully shutting down their factories, then uh, they're not going to be able to count on Israeli investors so much as they can right now. Why does Elbit have these factories in the UK in the first place? Like it did have 10, it now has nine remaining factories. Why are they here in the first place? Like surely they're not reliant on British technology in the same way they are reliant on American technology. Is, is this more to do with their expansion strategy that you were describing of buying these companies out? Um, well, part of it is, is buying the companies and, and showing that they have a bigger production base, but really it's not about production. It's about controlling the customers. And all of these deals are done by, be, between people. It's a, you know, the arms industry is the most corrupt sector of the economy. So when an, a representative of Elbit, some lobbyist, is meeting with some British politician and saying, don't you want our shiny new drone for whatever shenanigans you are going to do overseas, or just to be able to say, we're going to protect our soldiers with this new late uh, state-of-the-art drone made by Elbit. And the politician says, that sounds nice, but I have a limited project, a budget. There are other companies that are willing to offer their shiny drones as well. Why should I buy yours? Then the Elbit person can say, oh, you can also say you're creating jobs because we're going to make some of those drones in a, in a, a factory in right. your constituency. That's how it works. So the so politicians then have buy-in. Exactly. That That's always how it works. And a lot of countries, some countries, by the way, we spoke about China before. China simply has it in, in its laws. You know, if you want to sell uh, products to China, you have to pr produce some portion of that product in China. So you can't just export finished materials. Uh, but um, in, in certain sectors, I, I don't want to get into the, you know, all the all the technical details, but but uh, th this is a big part of it that uh, Elbit would have to uh, to buy some factories in China, hire people, create jobs if they want to sell to China. But in other countries like the UK, it's not necessarily written in the law, but it is common practice and it is part of the political benefit that politicians would get from from buying those drones. I mean, that happens here in the US all the time, you know, just, you know, in the context of Ukraine, um, you know, m most, if not all of the elected officials, you know, vying for war um, against Russia, um, you know, sending these like, you know, quote unquote, lethal aid shipments um, to, to Ukraine, um, they, their constituencies um, make up a, a large force, a large portion of the workforce for Raytheon, for Lockheed Martin, for, um, you know, GE, which are producing these weapons. So it's, it's this, um, you know, it's, it's not out of the, the political context <laughs> at all. You know that Elbit has its mm. own lobby in the US, which is not going through APAC, but they have their separate lobby just for Elbit. And it's it's smaller than APAC, and APAC itself is smaller than GE and Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. Uh, but yeah. um, when when they want to talk uh, directly about the arms industry, they they have their own lobbyists to to talk directly to the Americans, and they have subsidiary companies in the United States for that mm -hmm. exact purpose. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really interesting because yes. I don't think we hear so much about the Elbit lobbyists. Yeah, they, they, oh, no politician would like to meet with them in the open. Mm. Yeah, you don't want to meet the arms <laughs> dealers in, in the open, but lobbyists yeah. still do their jobs behind closed doors. Right. Amazing. Um, Shir, you uh, mentioned, mentioned concert 
uh, earlier. Can you talk a little bit more about the surveillance matrix uh, that Israel is not just involved in, but you know, selling the technology um, all over the world? Um, the the NSO group uh, specifically, um, there was an issue that came up very recently that um, that te technology, that the Pegasus technology. Um, developed by NSO is being used against citizens of Israel as well as human rights defenders and journalists, um, especially you know uh, people who are working in um, the the Palestinian um, you know human rights uh, organizations. And and now it seems that many of NSO groups officials are jumping ship. Um, can you talk a little bit about what's happening with NSO and why it's significant? Yeah, well, it's it's a huge topic, and I think we should really start by asking the question: If it, it, it's not just NSO, right? There's also Celebrite, there's also Candido, there's also Black Cube. This is a and and a bunch of others, and all these companies are known collectively as offensive cyber companies or espionage espionage companies, and they are all Israeli. Where are all the American cyber companies, uh, offensive cyber companies? There are some talks about uh, a UAE company called uh, Dark Matter, which actually employs a lot of Israeli uh, ex-officers. But other than Dark Matter, the, there are no other companies in other countries. And it's not because the Israelis have some kind of technology that the other countries don't have. It's not about the technology. It's about the willingness to employ technology that most countries only reserve to be used by their own secret service or, or intelligence branches for a private sector. So that's a level of privatizing of intelligence that only the Israeli government allowed to happen and encourages it to happen. And NSO and also to some extent the other companies have had a terrible year. The last thing that, that uh, companies spy companies want is to be in the headlines, to have their methods exposed, to have their workers exposed by the news, by Human Rights Watch, by Amnesty. Their targets National. exposed too. I mean, people their are targets saying, exposed. you know, Pegasus yeah. was installed on my phone. Yeah. That That is a, a very damaging to them. And NSO is on the verge of bankruptcy. That's one of the reasons that they're jumping ship. There's a lot, enormous pressure to on the Israeli government. What are you doing about this? This company constantly boasts that they operate with Israeli license, with the license of the Israeli Ministry of Defense, and that they don't move without permission and encouragement by the Israeli government. So the Israeli government should take responsibility. But that's how privatization works, right? The profit is being privatized, but the risk stays uh, public. And that's the, the, the issue there. So I think the the companies are having a bad year, but it's also because of their business model that makes them different than all the other companies, which is they use the Israeli expertise of surveillance that was developed for occupation, for controlling a civilian population by constant surveillance. And they take that and the main technological advantage of that, of that kind of surveillance is that it saves labor. Because other countries also have surveillance. China is not a very liberal democracy, and it's not a country where people can say what they want about the government without being listened to, right? The government is listening to what people are saying, but they're doing it by different means. They actually have security personnel listening to the conversation, conversations, reading texts, reading posts on social media, and making judgment calls. This is disloyal, this is subversive, this is okay. The Israelis don't want to do that. The Israelis found out that if you take security officials and expose them to too much of you know, texts and, and conversations by Palestinians, they could become convinced. They could go native, as the British used to say during the uh, glory days of the empire. When, when their officers went native and, you know, started to integrate into Indian society, for example. Uh, so they don't want that to happen. They don't want the Israeli officers to read what you have on your phone themselves. What they want is to have an algorithm that will pick out the suspicious things and they'll only look at those. Right. And what NSO is doing, uh, specifically NSO with the Pegasus program, is they're uh, outsourcing 
the hard work of processing the data to their customers and only giving the tools to actually obtain the data, to, to hack the phones themselves. So they sell the technology to Morocco and Morocco says, okay, we're gonna listen to the phone of, of President Macron in France. Uh, we're gonna sell it to Lukashenko in Belarus and he's going to decide which of the demonstrators against his administration he wants to listen to. And that's uh, how these companies operate, which of course is a, is a recipe for disaster because you sell to the worst dictators of the world and they then go ahead and violate human rights using your technology. You have permission from the Israeli government to do that and, and then people get murdered or tortured and, and so on. Uh, so this is a model that no other country, no other uh, uh, private sector of another country wants to get into. They know that it's a very bad investment. It can only end in disaster. Uh, the more recent development now that uh, you've alluded to is the fact that uh, there was an investigation by an Israeli newspaper that discovered that the Israeli police is also among the customers of NSO. And they bought the Pegasus program and installed it on phones of Israelis. Okay, but then, of course, the f people first assumed, oh, well, Palestinian Israelis, right? You know, Palestinian activists who could also be terrorists and, and fighting against the state and so on. So it's fine. But no, this journalist discovered that actually the police decided to use that program against protesters who, Jewish protesters, who protested the Netanyahu administration. Uh, the Black Flag Movement, if you heard of it, uh, which was um, an anti-corruption movement that said Netanyahu has to go to jail for his corruption, not for his, not because of the occupation, not because of apartheid, just because of his corruption. Just fine, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And these people are now, you know, they supported the current administration, so they're in the mainstream now. It's it's not we're not talking about some some radical activists. We're talking about people who who basically are the voters of the current government, um, and things like hacking into their phones to find out if they're using a if they're using Grinder, which is an app for uh, homosexual encounters by somebody who is married to a woman. So um, to to then shame him or or blackmail him. Right. In order similar to... techniques to what unit 8200 uses on palestinians that's right yeah well the For unit decades. 8200 which is using those techniques are the people who then go and work in nso and in celebrate in all these companies that's... right and and this is kind of the root of it all isn't it i mean it, it's interesting because you mentioned all these different israeli uh you know offensive cyber companies um i've called them cyber mercenaries in the past and um the, the the common thread with all of these or most of these companies is that their their main personnel all tend to be uh, trained by Unit eighty two hundred. They have their experience in Unit eighty two hundred, um, and uh, it, it's a, I suppose it's a kind of almost um, university for these sort of uh, cyber criminals essentially. Um, could you talk a little bit about about Unit eighty two hundred and the connection between all these companies? This is a, uh, um, some reports, of course, this is confidential, so I don't have the, the facts to, to back it up, but, but I did read several reports saying that this is the biggest unit in the Israeli military. It is certainly the most sought after unit because anyone who gets into that unit uh, will almost certainly have a job after being released from military service. And therefore, a lot of schools are offering uh, high schools are offering, you know, uh, our best students might get into 8200, so you should study hard or maybe pay for extra extra classes uh, after the school day and things like that, so you have a better chance to get into that unit. Within that unit, they are developing technologies, but the Israeli state controller discovered that the technologies that are developed by the unit, these surveillance technologies are not patented. So the government, the, the Ministry of Defense makes no effort to protect those technologies as their own, because that is part of the payment for the soldiers. Once they finish their obligatory military service, they get picked up by those private companies, also by Elbit, by the way. Elbit is a big hire of A200 graduates. And then they can bring that, that technology with them. 
and say, oh, this is what I developed for the Israeli military. It's not patented. I can reproduce it again. I can create it for you for a, for a fee. And that's how they get their job. And, and that's how, but the Ministry of Defense, you, you know, the, you would expect them to have an interest to protect these technologies. But actually, the Ministry of Defense is all full of generals who first served in the military, then worked in those private companies, then go into politics. So it's their friends, it's their social circles. They don't want to disrupt this way of how these technologies get into the hands of private companies. So that's, that's really interesting. And I hadn't um, heard it, heard that, heard it put that way before. And it, um, I'm not sure what your sources are for that, but it, it sounds, it's, it, it chimes with everything that I know about Unit 8200 and how it operates. Um, and I would say that, would you therefore think that, so, so Unit 8200 hasn't patented these kind of technologies and techniques, espionage technologies and techniques, but Unit 8200 as a unit of military intelligence. So is it therefore, my question to you is, is it therefore a safe assumption that all of these kind of technologies like Pegasus, um, you know, the, 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 the spyware, that you know can basically hijack a, a target's phone. Is it fair to assume then that um, Israeli military intelligence, Mossad, the Shin Bet, all have this technology themselves to use in their own secret operations? Yeah, absolutely. They have the technology. That there is no doubt about that. They yeah. can, if they want, hack the phones. The problem is, do they also have the person power and the inclination and the desire? to use the data that they gather in a right. meaningful way. And that's where we have two kinds of intelligence. There's SIGINT and HUMINT. SIGINT is short for signal intelligence. HUMINT is human intelligence. SIGINT is Israel's you know, flagship. That's what they do best, which means that if what they want to know is what is your body temperature at this particular moment, regardless of where you are, uh, they they have means of obtaining that information. But if they want to know what you're thinking, if they want to know if you're planning some action if, and if that action is going to be a terror attack or is it going to be a peaceful demonstration, that's where they completely lose it and have no idea whatsoever. And that's the problem because NSO, one of the boards, uh, uh, members of, of the board of directors of NSO is a good friend of Ayelet Shaked. Ayelet Shaked, who's currently the Israeli Minister of uh, Housing, uh, she was the um, uh, the minister of justice in the in the Netanyahu last Netanyahu government. Together, we with... reposted a manifesto calling Palestinians little snakes who should um, all be killed. Basically, yeah, that that was. Um... Uh, she, she always defends that quote by saying that she only quoted from somebody else who said that. But yeah, yeah. at the time she she failed to to mention that. Uh, but um, and she's with the same party with Naftali Bennett, who's now the Minister of Defense, and Naftali right. Bennett, uh, uh, who's now the Prime Minister. Naftali Bennett wanted NSO to take charge of the COVID social distancing enforcement back uh, in the last wave of COVID in Israel. And he said, uh, wouldn't it be good if we have the technology to hack all the phones so we can track everybody and make sure they don't infect each other? Now, the thing is, um, this this was it caused a ma major uproar in the Israeli public. They said, we don't want to be spied upon and so on. But like you said, the technology already exists in the hands of the Israeli secret police and, the, and so on. So the secret police is okay to the, the Shin Bet. They, they they are not a private company. They can do it. And so the government did approve that the secret police is going to track the whole population. And then it created a very interesting situation in which they used an algorithm to decide whether you violated the quarantine or whether you were in contact with somebody who was infected with COVID. But uh, the algorithm is not a person and makes a lot of mistakes. So they have a way to know your exact coordinates at any given time, for example, but they don't know how high you were. So you had different people in the, in the same building, but on different floors. 
and they say, oh, right. you met somebody who was infected, but it was on a different floor. <laughs> you didn't actually meet that person, yeah. uh, but you still have to go into quarantine. And, uh, and also, can't I mean, like, I mean, I, I presume part of this is from GPS and phone masking signals, and, and those things are not accurate within, you know, that amount of distance, right? One of the boasts of these companies is they they can improve the accuracy, but this still leaves us with SIGINT and not with uh, human, not human mm -hmm. intelligence. So you know, Bennett's party tried to do a favor for NSO and give them this massive contract. That didn't work out. But now it comes out that actually NSO did sell the program to the Israeli police, and it was used against uh, Israeli citizens. And that caused a major uproar because uh, how dare the Israeli police use this uh, horrible uh, program against Jewish Israeli citizens who whose only crime was to demonstrate against corruption. But uh, and then, of course, there was a big question, did uh, an Israeli judge approve that surveillance or not? And the Israeli police kept giving conflicting, contradictory answers like, uh, we never used the program on anybody. And we had a judge approve all the cases that we used the program. So, <laughs> yeah, pick pick one. <laughs> I mean, it, sounds, it sounds massively corrupt as well, because if the, I mean... Uh, you know, if the Shin Bet has got similar technologies to Pegasus, why does the Israeli police need to buy Pegasus anyway? It, it all sounds very strange to me. Mm. Yeah, well, the the idea is that, of course, that the actual <laughs> that police officers... Full spectrum dominance, yeah. <laughs> no, no, that the actual police officers are barely capable of reading and writing. <laughs> <laughs> They need somebody to, they need a private company to come in and install the program right. for them. Mm. And I think it also teaches us something about how NSO was involved in all these other countries, because I don't think that they just, you know, sent a CD-ROM or something. This is what, this is what I've been saying. Like, there's no way in hell, like, you know, that doesn't even exist anymore anyway, for one thing. Nobody uses it. Software these days is a service, isn't it? Like it's, it's, it's over, it's over the internet. It's, 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 um, it's streamed, you know, mm -hmm. as it were. Um, it's, it, there's at a minimum, all these countries must have had at least had support from NSO to run these things, if not, absolutely, you know, if not just actually NSO people operating it. I mean, that's that's what I would um, deduce. Yeah. The other day, I heard this fascinating conversation uh, in a, one of Israel's few critical news shows because uh, they were discussing this this big scandal, and they had a Palestinian journalist come on the show, and a Palestinian journalist said. You know, whenever you have a discussion about anything to do with security or big issues, you never have a Palestinian journalist on the panel. It's always an all Jewish panel. Uh, and this time you had a discussion about the NSO um, scandal and being used against Pegasus used against Israeli citizens. And still you didn't have any Palestinian <laughs> journalists on the panel. It was all like eight. They had eight journalists on the, around the same table, all of them Jews. But that's good. So this time it was good because it was the first time that Israelis felt something that Palestinians feel every day and get a taste of what it means to be surveilled upon every moment of your life. And we don't, they don't need us to explain it to them anymore. So let, let them deal with it for a change. I think that was a very interesting discussion. Of course, Israelis know that Palestinians are being surveilled all the time, but yeah. the right not to be surveilled becomes a privilege of the colonizer. And if they lose that privilege, then the whole, you know, security of we are the colonizers and this is our land and we have all the privilege is falling apart. It's a, it's a moment of, of panic. Sure. Finally, looking ahead, um, you know, as, uh, as COVID continues to um, affect, impact, um, destabilize global economies, um, you know, as Israeli arms companies continue to be, um, you know, as you put it, kind of like in this panic over their abilities to expand, and as the BDS movement globally um, continues to to challenge and and you know. Um, confront the the Israeli economy. Um, 
what uh, what can you say about the year ahead and and where these trends you think uh, may be going? I think uh, that COVID had a tremendous negative impact on the Palestinian solidarity movement around the world. That was a major setback because human rights activists and and justice activists they need the the ability to go out into the streets and demonstrate together and meet in person. And of course, when we are all facing these surveillance technologies, then the fact that we depend so much on digital communication is, is only making people more vulnerable to this. Um, and, and then, of course, you also have the economic impact of COVID, which distracted a lot of Israelis from the BDS movement because they said, oh, well, if there are no tourists anymore, that's not has nothing to do with BDS or with Palestinian resistance. It's about COVID and uh, the economy suffers from that. And, and then people assign it to COVID. The Palestinian economy has taken a major blow as well, of course. Uh, you know, the one of the most important Palestinian tourist organizations, ATG, the Alternative Tourism Group, they are fully aware of how the tourism industry exploits the Palestinian economy. Every tourist that comes to visit the West Bank ends up paying quite a lot of money into the Israeli economy as well, whether they want to or not. But they still have the slogan, come and see, because when people see the wall with their own eyes and see what, what are the conditions that Palestinians live under, that is a major way to convince them. And you cannot get the same impression if you watch it through a camera, through a video, it's not the same. So I'm very much hopeful that uh, we're going to start to see a an end or, or a, you know, a decline in infections and in deaths and uh, in, the, in the pandemic so that people can resume a little bit of normalcy. And I think a lot of pent up um, energy activist energy of people who are not able to exercise their their rights to protest is going to to be to come out once it's possible and i'm very hopeful that we're going to see a change thank you so much Shir hever uh Shir is the author of the political economy of israel's occupation and the privatization of israeli security thank you so much for all of your work and for being with us on the electronic intifada podcast again thanks Shir. Thank you. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.